Good morning. There we go. Okay. Um, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Second Corinthians, um, chapter twelve. We're going to start reading in in verse seven. And while you're turning there, I'll let you know a little bit about uh, where I'm coming from today, where I am this morning. I stand before you here rejoicing. Um, no sooner had I finished rejoicing at our celebrations of the birth of our Savior than I began rejoicing at the birth of my own fifth child, my, my little girl. Her name, I don't think, made it into the, um, the prayer request we sent out. We hadn't named her yet, but her name is Adeline Pearl. And she's doing very well. Um, her and her mom are resting at home right now. And uh, they have already brought us a lot of joy in our household. And I'm sure um, Adeline will bring you joy as well when you get to meet her soon. She was, uh, she was named after two um, very strong and very good women that, uh, that Abby and I both, um, well, had the chance to meet. But uh, Adeline... You can be praying for her. Um, she's a, a little, lost a little bit more weight than uh, the doctors had expected, but I don't think that's, that's much of a problem. Um, she's, she's doing very well now. But let's start reading Second um, Corinthians chapter 12 and starting in verse 7. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is, perfect, is <clears throat> made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Um, I think there's, there's more conjecture among scholars about the books of First and Second Corinthians than probably about any other book in the Bible. They've been reams of paper used up. There have been gallons of ink spilled, however many, to, um, to try to explain what these books are dealing with, to try to explain what Paul was dealing with in these letters. Um, and uh, there have been different theories that people have come up with. Most of them are, diff- are just conjecture because everybody wants this background story to First and Second Corinthians. What was, what was really going on? And part of the issue is that First and Second Corinthians, um, perhaps more than any of Paul's other epistles, um, deal with very, very specific situations within the churches. Paul did not set out at the beginning of this to write a, um, a systematic theology. He did not set out to, uh, to write a, a textbook for seminaries or anything like that. What he was doing was he was writing letters to a very specific church that he had planted, and he was writing these letters to deal with very specific situations. Now, the issue is we don't have like a a, um, 
I don't know, a, a story telling us what the issues actually were, all we have is the solutions. We don't have like something like what we would expect from, say, I don't know, First and Second Samuel with, uh, with David and all of the stories of his life with Goliath. We know that there was conflict going on. We know that there was a lot of conflict, but we don't have like that story laid out from us, for us, like, um, like, say, in the book of Acts or something like that. What we have is the godly responses. We have the godly responses to the issues that there were in the church at Corinth. And this has led to a lot of confusion among a lot of different scholars and um, writers about this. Um, adding to that confusion is that both First and Second Corinthians refer to other letters that Paul wrote to Corinth, and scholars have named those Corinthians A and Corinthians C. They're not part of the Word of God. If they're ever discovered by archaeologists, we don't really need to worry about them. But um, what we have are snapshots, snapshots of what uh, God was doing in the church at Corinth and what he was doing particularly through Paul. In a way, that makes these incredibly valuable. Now, of course, all Scripture is incredibly valuable. We know that. But these letters in particular deal with the gritty reality of life. They deal with issues of relationships. Um, there's, it's clear that there was issues of arrogance and um, pride and mockery. There was patience. There was love that was going on. And all of these things are issues that we deal with in our own lives and in our own relationships. All of these things that Paul was writing about here in First and Second Corinthians, um, we have to go through. We have to deal with. Because human beings sin, and very real sins are kind of in the background, and that's what's being dealt with. So, how do we connect all of this with our own lives and thinking and belief? How do we connect what we just read to the way we live and think? One place to start um, is by looking into something of what we do know about Paul's situation here. He does reveal a little bit of it, and how God led him to respond. Then perhaps we can apply um, that to our own place in the story, so that we can be better equipped to live our live out our own roles in the saga of redemption. So what do we know about Paul's situation? The more I, I looked into this, the more I read about it, um, the more I cringed. Paul, in his situation with the church at Corinth, he was in an impossible situation. It was one that couldn't possibly be dealt with. Um, now we as human beings, we have a, a morbid curiosity for impossible situations, don't we? We love to be entertained by them. We don't love to be in them. If you think about all of the movies you've ever enjoyed, all of the movies um, that you've loved the most, most of them involve the main characters, the protagonists, with whom we are meant to identify, being in some sort of impossible situation or another. I like to think of um, Wesley, Inigo, and Fezzik on top of the wall looking down into Prince Humperdinck's castle. You guys seen The Princess Bride? If not, you need to go right now and go see it because it's one of the best movies ever made. Um, Wesley is more or less paralyzed from the neck down. Buttercup marries Humperdinck in a little less than half an hour, and there is but one working castle gate, which is guarded by 60 men. Now, if they only had a wheelbarrow, that would be something. Um, 
Most of you probably did not get that reference. It's an old movie now, but I love it. Um, a little bit more modern, not, not quite up to date, is the Russell Crowe's character in A Beautiful Mind. Um, you know, one of my favorites, again, though, he had this incredible ability to do things with math. You remember that? That he, he could solve problems that I can't even comprehend, and he, he could find the solutions to them. Um, he could do more than I could ever dream of with that. And he needs to use his ability that God has given him, his God-given strength. Um, and we as viewers, when we look at that story, we long for him to be able to use that ability, that mathematical ability. But if he takes his medication, his mind turns to mush. And he can't solve the problems. He can't work the math. He can't do these great things. If he does not take the medication, he succumbs to, to delusions um, and to, uh, to um, hallucinations. And he can't tell reality from fiction. And ultimately, uh, he puts his own family in danger. He's in this impossible situation. There's nothing he can do to solve it. Well, Paul's situation here in the church of Corinth was likewise impossible. <laughs> the thing is, Paul states over and over and over again in his letters that he loved his churches. He loved the people within them. He loved um, the churches that he had planted. And I say his churches, they're Christ's churches. They were the churches that Christ used him to plant. Um, he goes back again and again talking about how he prays, how he longs, how he, um, how he loves these people. And it's not just his own professions um, of love that are important here. He's not like some high school romantic with, uh, without any real-life um, evidence of his love. There was evidence. He lived out that life. He had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death for his churches. So if you would turn over to uh, chapter 11. I'll just read 24 through 29. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 24 through 20, 29. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes plus one. It was a maximum number of lashes allowed by the law in those days because otherwise you'd probably die. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. Paul loved his churches. To the point where he endured all of these things in this list. And yet his greatest anxiety was his anxiety for them. Not for himself. This is what God had led him to. This is what God had built up in him. So into this situation... Paul planted the church at Corinth. He loved the church at Corinth. 
He ministered to the church at Corinth. He went on um, to plant other churches, and into that situation stepped the super apostles. In chapter 11, verse 5, and then again in chapter 12, verse 11, we hear about these men called super apostles. And I, I love that term. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. It might be that Paul's using it sarcastically to talk about his opponents. Oh, you guys are the super apostles. It might be that they were using it for themselves. You know, we, we are super apostles. Anyways, once Paul left, they come in and they start teaching the church. They were apparently very well trained in classical rhetoric. They were very smooth. They were very persuasive. They came to Corinth uh, demanding substantial payment for their services in, in imparting spiritual mysteries. Um, these were very powerful men. They were apparently formidable men, and they claimed to represent the teachings of Christ. Now, all that that I just mentioned, that's not all that bad, what they were doing. Certainly at other churches, um, Paul had, had accepted financial compensation, and certainly there have been many great ministers who have had classical training and rhetoric. Those types of things aren't all that bad. The problem was they weren't preaching the truth. They were preaching a different gospel. They were preaching another Christ. They were preaching a different spirit. Um, according to chapter 11, verse 4. Now, like I said earlier, we don't know much of the background. We don't know exactly what they were preaching. There's a lot of possibilities there. Maybe they were saying that um, Christians had to become Jews before they became Christians. Um, they could follow Christ as their champion, maybe, after they became Jews. We don't know. But ultimately, that's not all that important. What is important is that what they were teaching was opposed to the truth of God, as God had revealed in his, through his prophets and through his apostles, um, in their case, through Paul. In chapter 11, verse 13 through 15, we find that they were false apostles. They weren't super apostles, after all. They were deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. This is, I'm reading the text here. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. These super apostles were actually servants of Satan, and they had infiltrated Paul's beloved churches, or his beloved church at Corinth, rather. Um, and these super apostles, they realized that the best way to share their false gospel, the, the best way to spread their false gospel was to undermine the true gospel, to undermine the gospel of Christ. And the best way to do that was to undermine the credibility of the man who was bringing the gospel, of Paul. So, apparently, we know from Paul's responses they had attacked him. They had accused him. Um, they, had, uh, they had accused him, ironically, of not accepting financial compensation from the Corinthians. Basically, I think their logic went something like this. Um, he didn't charge you much or anything because his teaching, his spiritual teaching, isn't worth anything. We charged you a lot because we impart the deepest secrets. 
And it's likely that um, they also said something along the lines of, the proof is in the pudding. Look at the success of our ministry. Paul struggles. I read about his struggles earlier. Everywhere he goes, but we are clearly successful. God has affirmed us as his servants by giving us financial success. And we hear this kind of logic often enough today, don't we? And that's one of the reasons um, why I I hope to go to East Africa, to Uganda at some point, um, is because within the health and wealth gospel and all of that that movement that's really taken hold there, um, Uganda is is basically full of, of super apostles, of people who are who are claiming that the evidence that God loves them is in the fact that that they have money and other people don't, and that um, that kind of logic, uh, the logic that says that if you love me, God will give you blessings as well, is is an incredibly damaging lie, and it was the lie that these super apostles were. Um, we're sharing. And it, it makes me mourn to hear it. I've seen videos of their sermons there, and certainly you guys have seen videos of, or seen sermons or something like that here in the United States. That idea, if you send me cash, or if you honor me, God will honor you, because God loves me. That's, that's how it goes. And that's what Paul was dealing with here. Um, and it's not just health and wealth preachers that use this logic. How many ministries have you seen Um, that point to the size of their following. Oh, by the way, before I move on, um, I was very encouraged to hear that uh, that um, in parts of the world right around there where I would like to go in Uganda, um, our church is supporting missionaries who are doing theological education, who are training pastors not only not to have that mindset, but hopefully also to combat that kind of mindset in the churches there. But there are churches here um, who would point to the size of their following or the level of their influence as the chief barometers of their success. How many individuals measure the success of their lives in this way, of their own influence? Um, So the super apostles were claiming that Paul was an inferior apostle. His letters were long, they said. Or sorry, his, his letters were strong. They're actually not very long. But his letters were strong, but in person, he was easily dismissed. Um, In person, he appeared weak. Only in his writing did he appear strong. So do you see the impossible nature of Paul's predicament here that he finds himself in in this passage that, that we're looking at? If he gives all of his credentials as an apostle and says, talks about his visions and talks about how Christ appeared to him, then he'll come across as boasting in his own strength. And he doesn't want to do that. That's not what Christ did. That's not how he learned Christ. But if he just lets these super apostles go, if he, if he doesn't, if he's not strong in his confrontation, then the gospel is at stake. If they can discredit him, then maybe they can discredit the gospel. Maybe they can discredit Christ. And his church is lost. And so we see in these passages right around this, and especially 2 Corinthians uh, 10 through 13, that, um, that Paul is in something of agony. He's, he's really struggling <laughs> because, of, because of his impossible situation.
So what was Paul's spirit-led response then? This is the passage that we were looking at today. How did Paul respond? Well, he responds by boasting like a madman, like a fool. He uses those words, I'm boasting like a madman in his own weakness. In his own weakness. And that's not just a tactic. It's, it might be a genius stroke, I don't know. But it's the truth. And it's the proper way to live out life in response to the gospel. Paul was able to boast in his weakness because he had already preached a gospel of Christ working in strength through the weakness of his human servants. Um, turn with me, if you would, way back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll read just uh, 22 through 25. For Jews demand signs. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul had already laid the groundwork for boasting in his weakness by showing that weakness is how God works. The strength of God is stronger than the weakness of, uh, than the strength of men. Sorry, the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. And he goes on in these verses as well um, to discuss that, to discuss God working through weakness. And so it was completely natural for him. This was written before these super apostles came along. It was written before people had challenged his authority and said that he was weak. And so he was, he was primed and ready. The gospel that I preach is a gospel of human weakness, of human inability. Perhaps he knew even then that the temptation of influence and false wisdom would be a real problem for the church at Corinth. But that is how God works. He doesn't need influential people. He doesn't need human influence. He doesn't, or he doesn't need the influence of people, I should say. He does need, or he does use people. He doesn't need the influence of people. And in fact, throughout the broad sweep of Scripture, if you look at all the stories and if you look at all the characters, it's the influential people. It's those strong people, those people trusting in their own strength to do what needs to be done. They're usually the ones who get in the way. This is true because the temptation for the influential person and for the people around him is to trust his influence to rest in that influence, to rest in that strength, that human power. And for those people, Christ becomes a stumbling block. So what is the weakness that Paul boasts in? In the example of Paul, it is not the weakness of fear. It is not a weakness that leads to fear. 
Trust in God does not lead to fear. Ironically, it is the strength of the super apostles that leads them to fear. This is because they know, super people who are trusting in their own strength know that their strength isn't, isn't enough. It's not strong enough. And so it leads to fear. But the kind of of weakness that Paul acknowledges in 2 Corinthians is the weakness that says from the get-go, I am not strong enough to meet this impossible situation. But God is, and he will. Therefore, I am free to proceed with boldness into the life God has given to me. The weakness in in which Paul boasts is not timidity or a lack of confidence. Paul was accused of being timid. But that was because of his gentleness with his people, with his churches. His is not the weakness that shrinks back from adversity or danger. It is the opposite of that. It is the weakness that gives courage. So what specifically were Paul's weaknesses? First of all, he was unable to deliver himself from the trials. Remember all those trials that I, lift, uh, that I listed out? all of those shipwrecks, all of those beatings, all of those pains, all of those calamities. He was unable to deliver himself from those. He couldn't keep himself away from those. He was unable to escape. The anxiety came because he was unable to preserve the churches he had planted. He lived in a constant struggle against people who were infiltrating his churches with false gospels because in his weakness, he he couldn't protect them. They were directing people away from Christ. And he couldn't protect them from that. He was unable to because he was human and he was weak. And we may be tempted to think, wow, if Paul endured all of those things, he must have been an incredibly strong person. Maybe one day I'll have that kind of strength to meet my own situation. But that is not how Paul saw it. In the ancient world, the favor of the gods was supposed to be something like a good luck charm that would deliver their followers from calamity. Maybe it still is in some people's minds. Paul was not able to avoid calamity, and so he was weak. The weakness that God intends for us is the inability to keep ourselves from failure. And certainly we try to avoid failure. We work hard. We're not apathetic. But we can't keep ourselves from failure. And that's, how, that's what God intends for us. And for Paul, on top of all of his struggles and apparent failures... There was his thorn in the flesh. If you look back in, into Second Corinthians 12. Um, so to keep me from becoming conceited, I'm reading in verse 7 again. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He says that twice. Now, it has been proposed that this thorn um, was some sort of psychological struggle, or maybe this thorn was some sort of human opponent that was harassing Paul. Um, Some people see, some scholars see in it a physical ailment, or perhaps it's strictly demonic oppression of some kind. And the fact that all of these theories have been been proposed by scholars just points to the fact that we really don't know um, what this thorn was. All we know that it, is that it was something that was bad. Um, it was a messenger of Satan, and it was, it was causing Paul pain. It was causing him hardship. And certainly, um, 
we can think in our own lives of, uh, of many such things, of specific people, of perhaps spiritual demonic oppression, psychological issues, physical ailments, that sort of thing. I think that one of the reasons maybe that it's not recorded what the thorn was is simply so that when you and I read this, we can apply it to our own lives. Maybe we're supposed to pick our own thorn, and maybe what we're supposed to see is how God worked within that situation, within the impossible situation of the thorn and the super apostles. Paul prayed three times that it would be removed, but in his weakness, his prayers were of no avail. In some way, God would be glorified in Paul's weakness. And so, submitting to the Holy Spirit, Paul was content not only to bear his thorn, but also in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 10, to be content with, weaknesses, with weakness, insults, maybe these insults were grounded in reality, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. So how do we apply this to our situation? How do we apply Paul's contentment to our situation? You and I are not the Apostle Paul. Most of us haven't planted churches. Some of us have. Um, most of us haven't gone through these intense trials for the sake of spreading the gospel. And most of us aren't being attacked by enemies, spreading a false gospel. Maybe, maybe we are. I don't know. In any, in any case, none of us are apostles in this room. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, so how do we apply this? I would encourage you to look at this passage from two different perspectives as far as application goes. The first is the unlikely perspective of the super apostles. You may find yourself in the position of being super. You may be super influential in various ways. You may be a super student or a super athlete or a super mom or a super worker. You may be super persuasive, super smart, super successful, like the super apostles. If that is you, don't get in the way. Don't succumb to the temptation of preaching, the temptation to preach the gospel of your own success at the expense of the gospel of Christ. And do not take lightly the truth of the gospel. If you are super, do not think that you or a consensus of other supers can use your intellect to find some better way than the way that was given to us in the word of God. God does not need your great brain or anyone else's. He can use you, but only if you are trusting only in his strength. And that trust only he can give you. Don't get in the way. Your strength is not sufficient to overcome the trials that are coming. That's perspective number one. Perspective number two is the perspective of those of you who are in an impossible situation, like Paul was. Many of us have found ourselves in impossible situations. There's just not enough money. There's just not enough time. Uh, maybe you're in a situation where you have all of these choices, but you can see how, or you have all of these options, but you can see how any option that you choose is going to lead to failure. Maybe your decisions have been taken away from you. Maybe decisions have been made by someone else. I don't know. There's lots of ways to find yourself in an impossible situation. To you, I say, boast in your weakness. 
not because of some sort of triumphalism, some sort of understanding that, um, or, or fatalism or anything like that. Boast in your weakness because Christ is strong. And his strength will be manifested in you. His strength will come in your impossible situation. He will be there. Don't be apathetic. Work hard. Certainly Paul did. And certainly the scripture is replete with exam- of uh, commands of how we are to work hard. But know that if you belong to Christ, his strength will be made perfect in your weakness. It may mean that you fail in what you're trying to do. It may mean that you will need to redefine what success and failure look like. But if you're resting in Christ, he will be glorified and ultimately he will work things to your good. If you fail at your endeavors while you are resting in Christ, it will be better for you than if you had succeeded in your own strength, in being a super. Now, most of us live in both of these worlds simultaneously. Most of us, in some ways, we're supers. We're strong. We can get things done. We can make things happen. In other ways, we know that there's, there's no way we can meet our challenges. <laughs> most of us have to repent of both. We have to repent of trusting ourselves and our own strength. We have to repent of preaching our own gospel, of, of trying to convince people how strong we are, how, how we're able to meet these situations, how we're able to, to triumph in our lives. Most of us have to repent of that, and we have to repent of the fact that, uh, that we don't rest in Christ to do those things, the fact that we fear the future um, because we're not trusting in Christ. Most of us are in both camps. And ultimately, we all live in the situation in which it is impossible for us to live out God's holy, revealed will, his law for our lives. But Christ did. He was the paradigm of human weakness and frailty. He was born in a manger. We just celebrated that. He was born poor. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And yet, through him, the world is being redeemed. He healed the sick, the lame, the blind, and he will return to conquer every nation, every system. God's kingdom is moving forward in our lives, and there's so much room there to rejoice. Trust him. Let's pray. Lord God, I do thank you um, that you are able. I thank you that you have brought us this joy. I thank you that you give us room for rejoicing here at Christmas as We look at how your son took on weakness, um, but was shown to be God, but was shown to be strong. Thank you, O God, um, that you have shown that in our own lives, how you have brought us to places of weakness, but have, have brought us also your own strength to deliver us in all of these situations. I pray, Lord, that you would give us courage and strength as we move forward 
through this week. I pray that you would give us a courage in this coming year um, to not trust in ourselves, to not trust in other super apostles that we may see, but to trust wholly, solely in your Son. I pray that you would fill us now with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.